Greetings, friends. Shalom, and welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Sean. Website can be found at scriptureandprophecy.com. That's where you go to find the archives. That's where you go to support this mission of truth. Well, this morning we are wrapping up our study in the book of Job and wrestling with that difficult question, why do the godly suffer? We're looking at chapter 41 and 42 today to wrap up this story. Now, the previous uh, broadcast we did dealt with Jehovah uh, talking to Job, answering Job. But he has, chapter 41 is one more chapter of response from God, from Jehovah to Job. Um, and really, it's about, it seems like it's about the Leviathan, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. But really what it's about is making it known to Job that, look, if you can't contend with or dare to contend with the beast, the Leviathan. How could you dare to contend with God, the creator of all things? Like if that beast is too terrifying to try to wrangle, how much more fearful should you be of the one who created the beast? How much more fearful should you be of the one who holds your very soul and your very breath in his hands. So with that introduction, let's quickly read here. Chapter 41 and 42, open up your hearts and let the word of God speak to you this morning. Let's begin. Chapter 41, verse 1. Can thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord, which thou lettest down? Can thou put a hook into his nose and bore his jaw through with a horn? Please note, Leviathan. I'm just going to tell you what my personal opinion is. I agree with uh, what you would call the uh, Browns, um, Divers, Berg's interpretation of what this is, which says that it's a, Leviath a Leviathan is a sea monster or a dragon or a large aquatic animal. Perhaps extinct in our day, but maybe not. Unfortunately, a lot of commentaries, and this is this is really what a lot of uh, churches and pastors and commentators do with things like this in modern times, really over the last couple of hundred years, is that we try to explain away things. Uh, that, that, that wasn't giants in Genesis 6, or that, that wasn't angels in Genesis 6 that came down. It was the sons of Seth. Like, let's... We don't want to have to deal with the fact that the Bible tells us all throughout the Tanakh that there was giants and that they, and, and we don't want to deal with Genesis 6 and we don't want to, so we have to explain these things away. 
And so what a lot of commentators do today is they explain away this. They say, oh, it's just a crocodile. It's just a crocodile or a whale. Well, or the weeks, or that's not really a unicorn. That's a, it's a rhino. Well, I disagree. I'm open to the, to the possibility that there is things still to this day in this world that I don't know. And most of us haven't left or moved more than a hundred miles from where we were originally born. And yet we think because they, because of what's told to us in our history books and our, and what comes through the black screen of death that we know all things and it's just science. I think Leviathan is this majestic beast. And maybe it even still exists to this day. I don't know. But at any rate, that's not the point that's being made here. So God's starting to, God's asking Job, could you, could you hook this thing? <laughs> like, could you wrangle up this thing? Or would you even dare try? Let's start over. Can thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Can thou put a hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make any supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Will thou take him for a servant forever? Will thou play with him as like with a bird, or will thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Can thou fill his skin with barbed irons, or his head with fish spears? Lay thy hand upon him, remember the battle, do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? So God's like... Any attempt to do any of these things that I just mentioned would be fruitless. And in fact, most people are cast down just by the sight of him. The, just the sight of Leviathan is, is incredibly fearful to man. Verse 10, None is so fierce that dare to stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? So God's saying, if you can't even stand before this beast and you wouldn't dare to, who then could stand before me, the one who created the beast? Verse 11. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can, who can discover the face of his garment, or who can come to him with a double brittle? Who can open the door of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are as pride shut up together with a closed seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. 
They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his nesting a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils go smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindled coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves, and they cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of nether millstone. When he raises up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breaking, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold, the spear, the dart, nor the harbinger. He esteemeth iron as straw, and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Slingstones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp-pointed things upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh like the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hooray. Upon earth there is not his like, who is made without fear. He beholdeth all things. He is a king over the children of pride. So that is chapter 41, and we're going to read chapter 42 here, which is Job's response now that he's listened to God speak. And his response, as many of ours would be and should be, is quite short. Because what do you say? And what do you say when you have to answer to God? What words can man possibly utter in defense? Here's what Job says. Literally six verses of a response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou can do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered that I understand not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. By the way, this is the response to every godly man that encounters, and to every man that encounters God. When Isaiah has a vision and he's in the throne room, 
and he realizes how holy God is because you've got these angels flying around God saying, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And what's he do? Falls on his face as though dead. I'm a sinful man and I live among sinful people, he says. Peter, when he realizes that Jesus is the Messiah, what's he say? Get away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Job, Job here says, what could I possibly say? What words could I possibly utter? Now that I see who God is, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. We got a few more verses to read that tell us how things ended up shaking out for Job in the end. Let's have a quick look at that. Starting with verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said, to Eliphaz the Timonite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly." that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant Job so please note God looks at the three friends and says um yeah you guys got it wrong and you need to offer up sacrifices and have Job pray for you so what's the sin of the three friends Their sin, I believe, is misrepresenting God. Which I believe, when you misrepresent God, that is the sin um, of taking the Lord's name in vain. It's, It's a misrepresentation. Now, a lot of people do this. Because they're arrogant about their own wisdom and their own knowledge. They're the ones that come to you or they'll come to my comments. or, And usually their sentence starts with, don't you know? They're arrogant, full of pride. And even with their tone and their arrogancy, they misrepresent God. Even if some of the words that they say may be true, they misrepresent God in demeanor. An approach. Whenever we dare to try to answer a question that somebody has as it, re- as it pertains to God, we need to do it with the utmost humility and the utmost care because you're representing God and the person's soul is at stake. Do not think that you will not answer for your words wherein as you have spoken 
for God. When somebody says, why has God allowed this into my life? And you come with an arrogant answer that misrepresents God. You will answer for it. This is why the smartest thing that the three friends did throughout this whole situation was at the very beginning when they just came and sat with Job in his misery and they kept their mouth shut. That was the only time when they were truly representing God correctly. Continuing on. So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bilidad the Shuhite and Zophor the Namathite went and did according to the Lord as the Lord commanded. And the Lord also accepted Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters, and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house, and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So please note, I mean, I don't have an ans- necessarily answers for everything, but we have to acknowledge what the scriptures say here. The scriptures say that God brought this evil upon Job. Which we already know that if God be sovereign, then that has to be true. That's a difficult question to wrestle with, that God would permit or allow things like this into our lives. But it doesn't change that. And look... As we're getting ready to see with the last four verses of the story here, things end well for Job. But that doesn't mean that he still didn't lose his kids. Even if everything's restored, all your finances and you have a bunch more children, that doesn't, that doesn't make the loss go away. Difficult. And I don't bring those points up to uh, try to take away hope from the story. Because there's obviously hope. But I don't want to discount suffering and loss even when you're restored. You still went through that thing. You still lost that person. There's still pain that happened (laughs) And so even if it turned out to be for your good and for the benefit of your soul and has good purpose in it and we wouldn't dare argue with God over it, I think it would be unfair and unjust to pretend like there's still, like there's not a scar or a wound from going through that thing. Let's read these last few verses here of how this turned out. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 she-asses. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jimina, Jimima, and the name of the second 
Kezia, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job a hundred and forty years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. So Job's blessing is the, the latter end of his life was, was long, prosperous, and blessed. He went through the crisis, and then he got to live a life of peace and comfort. He got to live so long that he got to see four generations come from his children. I mean, that is blessed beyond blessed. And we should not discount that or overlook that. How incredible that is. Think about the time you're living in right now. The trials, the uncertainty of the world. Now imagine that you live another hundred years. Well, let's just be realistic. If you're middle-aged, let's say you live another 50 or 60 years. And you get to see two or three generations. You get to see your grandkids, your great-great-grandkids before you die, or your great-grandkids before you die. And you will look back on those moments when you thought, man, I didn't know if the world was going to make it. Or, I didn't know if I was going to even survive that crisis, much less be here today. Seeing my grandchild, seeing my grandchild's child. And... One other thing I want to point out, and I know you guys hate it when I do this, but I have to, is when I point out something and then have no answer for it. The book of Job does something that that's very unusual for this time frame and for the Old Testament. Usually it's the daughters whose names... I mean, if somebody's going to be left out, right? Like if whenever they're sons, you know, the Bible goes out of its way to name the sons and some, and maybe, maybe not the daughters, right? But in this case, it says that Job had seven sons, doesn't tell us who they were. What it describes is the three daughters. I found that, I just find that interesting. Like, why is that? Like, why is, why is that different in this story than all the other stories? And I thought, well, I'll just look up their names in Hebrew, you know, because Hebrew names mean stuff. I didn't really come up with much. Um, Jimima, which is Yemimima, which means day by day. Okay, I can kind of get that, you know. He named her day by day because that's how you kind of have to take life. Uh, the second daughter who, in Hebrew's name, so in the English it says Kezia. It's um, pull it up here. It's Ketzia, Ketzia, and there's no meaning that I can find for her name. It's never it's never used anywhere else in the scripture. It's got one occurrence right here. Ketsia. 
And then the third daughter it names is Karen Hapuk, which means horn of anatomy or like horn of cosmetic. I don't know if he if Job's pulling that from the unicorn or what. But well, there was nothing there. And the scripture just tells us that the that these daughters that there was no daughters more fair than the daughters of Job. And by the way, the the that fair is in Hebrew yafeth, yafeth, which means beautiful, attractive. There was no other women in all the land who were more beautiful and attractive than those daughters of Job. And that's all we know about that about that situation. I just so I'm I'm raising the question and giving you no answers. Just something to chew on, something to think about, maybe something to dig deeper into somehow. So then the question becomes, do we really ever get an answer to that question that we've been wrestling with for the last three months as we've done this study? Why do the godly suffer? And there's no answer that really satisfies, but I thought uh, that the answer given by the fourth person, um, Elihu, was the closest to an, an answer that resonates and one of his answers was, if you go to chapter 33, he, in verse 28, he says, He will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man to bring back his soul from the pit. These things God allows in our lives. It's for the benefit of the soul, and it may not be comfortable. It may feel horrible. And we may not completely grasp it or understand it this side of heaven. But we must trust God and understand that He has allowed this for the benefit of our soul. Because he's more interested in our eternal state, where we will be forever, than he is for this temporal state, a life full of vanity. And I'll remind you of Matthew Henry's commentary to end the show and to end this study. We've read it a couple of times. Let me end with that. He says this. Elihu shows that God often afflicts the body for the good of the soul. This thought will be of great use for our getting good from sickness and in by which God speaks to men. Pain is the fruit of sin, yet, by the grace of God, the pain of the body is often made a means of good to the soul. When the afflictions have done their work, they shall be removed. That's all I have for you. Peace and grace be with all of you. And until next time, God bless.